This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, April 22nd, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Andrew Pack. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. reading comes from uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 5 verses 6 through 14. I'm going to start from verse 5b. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Final greetings. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. Good morning. How are you all this morning? Good. Two people are good. Everyone else is here. Uh, Welcome to Restoration Road Church. If this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the director of discipleship for our church. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table out there. And when I close my eyes to pray, you can get up and get one. You can actually get up and get one now, but no one does that. So, um, but you could be the first. Uh, but please go ahead and grab a Bible. We will be using it quite a bit because we use the Bible here quite a bit. Welcome to Restoration Road Church. Um, please pray, pray with me. King Jesus, you have invited us into your family. Today, we are opening the word that you, the God of the universe, wrote to hear about your son who you sent into history to save sinners from death to life, not because of anything we have done, but everything you chose to do In and of ourselves, we deserve none of this, and yet you have gifted it to us. You have changed us. You've made us new. You've made us your family. You've made us your children. You've sent us your spirit. You've given us your word. You've given us a normal life in Jesus. And Jesus, I pray for us that we would see the power of the life in which you've given us, empowered by the spirit, led by the word. And that we wouldn't take the task this morning lightly of worshiping you. That we wouldn't wouldn't blow off what we're doing when we sing your praises or we pray to you. Or we open your word to hear from you. You've given us a normal Christian life that is radically abnormal. 
It is the antidote that we need as we sit in the society in which we live and is the apologetic to a broken world who needs you so desperately. And so Jesus, send your spirit to move in this church and in the churches of Snohomish County and in the state of Washington today that your name would be lifted up and your name would be glorified and that we would worship you well. I pray for anyone who's never heard the good news, the gospel today, Lord Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to them. And today would be the first day of the rest of their new life in you. I pray against the devil, his servants, their works and effects, uh, his schemes, his tricks. We denounce him, we renounce him, and Jesus, we pledge our complete and unfettered allegiance to you. We love you, Jesus, and pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, so today we're really going to continue in what Peter has been doing the whole time, which is really an extended discussion about what I will call uh, a normal life in Jesus. I hope as you've read this book, and if, and if, you're, if this is your first time with us or you don't know your way around the world, we're going to be in 1 Peter, and we're in chapter 5 today, which is about here in a Bible, and mine's about the size of one of those paperback Bibles we have, so it's about there. Uh, we're concluding this letter, and we're continuing this conversation that we've had, uh, and I hope you've got this sense as you've worked your way through uh, Peter, that Peter has a mission with this letter, and that is to encourage people who are in Jesus, who know the Word, and know uh, who He is, and what He's done, who are living in this broken world. And as people who love Jesus, when you live here in this world in which we live, things can become very, very difficult, and they're feeling it, right? If you're being faithful to Jesus, you're probably feeling it right now, too. And I hope that you don't miss that the point of this whole letter is to encourage people to keep going in the life that Jesus had given them, and it's written as an encouragement. And in fact, most of the things in the New Testament are actually written as encouragement. There's a couple letters where, uh, you know, they're corrective, right? Uh, they're a little stinging. First Corinthians, James is kind of grumpy. But Peter's trying to encourage people to keep going, to keep going, and to keep going in this normal Christian life, in this life in Jesus. Now, uh, when I say that, I have to define that for you and what I'm even talking about, Right? So here's the hard part about reading a letter. Dick did such a nice job reading uh, even into the passage from last week, which I'm always trying to steal more and more Bible into my sermon. Uh, and so here we are, uh, and we're, these are the last things, these are the last sort of three things he wants to tell this church before he, sign, at least has Salvanus, sign the letter and send it off. Usually at the end of your email or a letter you write, the last things you write are often some of the most important, Right? But I would argue the things he's talking about here are not new for the discussion. They just sort of cap the letter in what he's saying. And so we have to understand where we're sitting in this letter because I don't have the privilege of reading the whole letter to you from the beginning, right? But the thing that Peter has continued to emphasize is the reality of Jesus and the reality of his gospel. If you are here and you don't know who Jesus is, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the Savior of the world, the God of the universe, who has entered into human history, who has come into history to save sinners like me and like you. Sin, by the way, is not just wiling out and doing wrong things, right? Sin isn't just the thing the bad guys do in the cowboy movies. Sin is all the right things I do for the wrong reasons. 
Sinner is all the things that I do in my life for a pat on my back or to advance my own agenda or honestly even just so I can feel better about myself. If you give a homeless guy a coat so you can feel better about you, you didn't really give him the coat. You gave the coat to yourself. Right? And honestly, frankly, there are a ton of things that you should be doing that you just don't. Right? It's not active sin. It's stuff that you see in the world, someone who you know needs help, someone you should talk to about something, something that should happen that you're like, yeah, you know. Netflix put out, puts out whole series at the same time now, and I can just binge nine hours of Lost in Space. I know there are better things I should do with my time, but when you put them all on the internet at the same time, I must watch them from beginning to end for some reason, even if you think it's horrible. But Peter keeps emphasizing this reality of the gospel, right? Every world religion is a method by which you get to God or you get to nirvana or you get out of this world or you get to paradise or you get your own planet or whatever that thing might be. The good news of the gospel is not about you earning God's love, but the God of the universe coming to save you from your sins and free you to live life for him, not because of anything you've done, but by grace alone he saves you and by faith alone you get to love him. This is the context of 1 Peter. If you don't have that in your mind when we talk about what we're talking about today, the things we're talking about today won't actually make any sense. Not only that, Peter knows we live in a broken world. Peter knows that we live in a world where things as they are, are as they ought not be. And that when you become a Christian, you're reborn. He gives us this word born again, which I always want back. It means someone who's been changed by the gospel, not someone who shows up to church on Easter and, and Christmas, right? A born-again Christian is someone who has been changed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit, saved by Jesus. And Peter uses that word a couple of times as he's talking. But when you're born again, when you become a Christian, you're actually born again behind enemy lines. You're actually born into a hostile world. You're actually born into a world that doesn't necessarily love the things of God or the things of Jesus. And, and even as we'll see today, there's even a spiritual dynamic to that reality. But Peter keeps emphasizing and re-emphasizing God's program in history. That God actually has a plan for this broken world. He's actually fixing this broken world. That is why Jesus came. It is to restore this place and change this place and put it back the way it's supposed to be. Because where we're sitting in this letter with Peter, God made the world good. Human beings broke it. And by the way, human beings keep breaking it. We're pretty good at it. We're pretty good at breaking other people's lives. We're pretty good at breaking our own lives. We're pretty good at being selfish. We're pretty good at starting wars. We're pretty good at being greedy. We're pretty good at trashing the planet. We're pretty good at a lot of things that are pretty not good. And Jesus is going to restore all of these things. And he's already started that at the cross. He's actually already finished it. He's already done everything that needs to happen for this thing to come to conclusion. And God is working in time. Now, Peter is writing to a people on the other side of the resurrection, on the other side of Pentecost, who are indwelt by the Spirit, who get to live for Jesus in real time, who are freed from their sins and are waiting for Jesus to come back and waiting for him to wipe every tear from every eyes. And we're saying, when? And even as the heat is getting turned up on these people, as the heat has continued to get turned up on the church in different ways throughout the last 2,000 years, he's writing to a people that the heat's getting cranked up on. And he just says, he's not just saying, hey, it's going to be okay, right? 
You know, you want to say that to people when someone's in the hospital or something. You say, oh, it's going to be okay. Honestly, friends, sometimes it's not going to be okay in the way that we mean it. But if we mean it in Christ and what Peter is doing here, because of the gospel, because of the good news, because we've been forgiven, because we've been made new, because we've been saved, because we've been born again, because Jesus is returning, because he's vindicating the righteous, it is actually going to be more than okay. It's going to be more than okay. And I would argue he does all of this in this big story that I've just talked about to situate our lives and their lives in a normal life in Jesus. Now, I think this is important for us as we dig into this text to understand this as both sort of an antidote and an apologetic. And here's what I mean by that. When I say a normal Christian life, I don't think we should think what I think we can think, said Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Sort of the average American Christian life, or what at least is the caricature of it. I think actually the, the, the church in America is healthier and more vibrant and those who love Jesus love him more than we realize and we need to even be careful as the church in America not to throw too many rocks. But the reality is, is that consumerism in our own lives is something we have to fight all the time. Putting myself at the center and so I can just consume and take what I want and it makes me comfortable. Uh, we, we, get, we get Jesus mixed up with politics. We get Jesus mixed up with agendas. We, we kind of invite Jesus along to our thing. Jesus, come support my plumbing business. If you're a plumber, I'm not picking on you, by the way. I know we have some, right? But there's some guys who aren't actual Christians who put that little fish on the side of their truck so they can get some business. They're just bringing Jesus along with the agenda. If you're a plumber, or anybody else for that matter, and you've got the Jesus fish on your car. You need to know that you can't flip anybody off when you're driving on Highway 2. You charge straight rates. You take care of people. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, be a good witness to them. But I think the normal Christian life, as the Bible describes it, is an antidote to this mundane thing where we just feel like we're going through the motions. Because the reality is you're an indwelt, spirit-led, spirit-indwelt human being who actually has a direct line to the God of the universe who is a new human being in Christ Jesus. And we'll talk about this more and more. Right? I think what we have here in the Bible, instead of you know, being a guy that just like sits and throws rocks at the church and I'm going to break somebody's instrument, and I'm so sorry, one of the Kirkmans. I'm going to move. I have to cage myself in. Set boundaries. Um, Mostly not trying to break really expensive instruments um, and forgetting where I am. So uh, as an antidote to that, I think we can, it's so easy to be uh, about the things that you're against. That's easy. Honestly, it's easy to tear stuff down. It's easy to pick on people. It's easy to pick on that last church you were at and how this is the best church ever until you realize we're a bunch of sinners trying to follow Jesus and we've got our own problems, right? It's easy to pick on that podcast your sister listens to from that guy in California or New Jersey or somewhere and just just rip it down. That's easy, and I I think as honestly as we'll see in a minute, it, it can even be demonic if I'll be really, really blunt with you. What's way better is living in the freedom of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the normal Christian life. And we're going to talk about that freedom in a second here. But I also think that that this kind of life uh, is an apologetic. And by that, I mean a defense of the gospel to the rest of the world. 
Because just as much as we can kind of have these caricatures of the average Christian, so does the rest of the world. The world looks at us and just thinks we're just kind of like a lame version of Hinduism or, or Buddhism or, or whatever, right? Like all religions are just trying to do something to get to heaven or get to paradise or get a planet or get a thing. And Christianity is kind of a lame version of that. Um, actually, it's not. Uh, the Christian life is way, way radder than that. It's a way, way better truth than that. Uh, it's this amazing thing. And I think as we look at the things that Peter's going to call us to here, I think we have in here a bit of a defense and something, a bit of an indictment on that caricature. Okay, so there's the setup. Let's look at our text today. So we're going to look at three things uh, in 1 Peter. We're starting in verse 6 in chapter 5. We're going to look at the, the fact that the normal, in, uh, normal Christian life entails that we are humble in Christ. Secondly, a normal Christian life entails that we are standing with Christ against Satan. So, again, this is honestly normal Christian life stuff. And you're like, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. It's kind of weird. We'll, we'll get there. There's, there's rules for how you address it. Mostly stay close to Jesus and the Bible. It's going to be okay. Uh, We should probably honestly talk about it a lot more because the Bible talks about it an awful lot. Uh, And finally, we're going to talk about how the normal Christian life entails waiting for Christ. So here we are in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. As we read the rest of this verse, I need you to see just right from the intro here, right here in the second word, humble yourselves. There is an action that we have to take as Christian people. He is giving us some homework. He's really giving us some heart work, some life work. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, he's just come off this great passage that Dick read a few moments ago um, that God opposes the proud. Close yourselves, uh, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So we need to be humble towards one another. But then he talks about being humble. Uh, We humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you. And that's really in juxtaposition to uh, oppose you, right? Casting all your anxieties on him because, and we'll spend a little time on this in a moment, but I mean, just these four words in the English translation here. He cares for you. That, That is the normal life in Christ. The God of the universe cares for you. How much of your thought space and mind space and day even spends any time on that reality. The God of the universe who made planets we'll never see, who's, who's doing stuff in the universe or on mountaintops even that we could hike to, right? You can hike up, you know, Twin Falls, but then you leave and God's still holding up the universe by the word of his power, right? He's still doing all of those things and he's actively caring for you. That, by the way, is the context of obedience. We think we need to obey so that God will love us, and we default to that. Man, we need to obey because God cares for us and knows how everything works, and that we can trust him. He's busy busy caring for you. But here we are. Humble yourselves. So there's this act of humility. Now, we have to start just off the top, on the top here, with what, what humility actually is. Okay, uh, when we think about humility, and I don't know how much we think about it in a world that's really built on uh, us building our personal brands to advance our careers or our art or our reputation in our high school or whatever the heck we're doing on the internet in 2018, right? Says the old man. Like that was the old maniest thing I could have said. What are the kids up to? I don't know. Um, 
What I do know is that we're doing the same thing human beings have done for a long time, and that's put ourselves in the center and build monuments to ourselves. These ones are just digital, not made out of bricks, right? Uh, now, I think the world's sense of humility uh, is this sense in this idea that, that what my job to do is to sort of self-deprecate, is to just make fun of myself or tell you how horrible I am at anything, right? That's humility. Well, you know, I'm pretty horrible at everything. And then I just wait until you see that I can do something good and say, oh, you know, whatever. Right? It's fake. <laughs> right? It's fake. That's not humility. Humility, biblically speaking, is actually based on understanding who God is and who you are. Humility starts with understanding your place in God's world and, and, and in God's story. Go with me to uh, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 2, Jesus well, Jesus doesn't say it until verse 3. This text is called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the uh, chapter of the Bible I was reading when I got saved. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That word meek is a little bit old-timey. That word meek really has that same connotation of humility. So, so how, why are we here? Well, one, I would say this is a text that until someone actually explained it to me, I was like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Is that just me? I was like, I don't know what he means by any of this stuff. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. What is to be poor in spirit? is to understand who the God of the universe is and who you are uh, in and of yourself, meaning you can see his holiness and apart from Christ, and that is the operative word for Christian people, by the way, apart from Christ, you see your sinfulness. You get a real good look at the mirror about what is driving you and what you are about apart from Christ, and you have a good look at his holiness, and you realize there is a giant distance between these two things. An impassable distance. An impossible distance. Remember what they say when the rich young ruler is actually following all the rules? Well, if he can't be saved, who can be saved? What does Jesus say? I have these ten steps for you and it's going to be awesome. He says, with man it's impossible. What? If it's impossible, what do I do? Well, good news. It's impossible for man, but it's possible for God. That's how big the gap this poor in spirit gap should be. This should wreck our hearts when we realize apart from Christ. Now, if you're in Christ, you don't sit there because that's not who you are anymore. That's not who you are in Christ. But you realize this gap is massive between yourself and the Lord. And you say, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm from a people of unclean lips. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Now listen to this. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wait, he says God, does he? Wait, it's Matthew. He says heaven. Heaven. I said heaven, then it didn't sound right. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like the thief on the cross who says, remember me today when you enter your kingdom. The thief on the cross sees the gap between himself and God. And Jesus' response to him is what? Well, if you can get down off that cross and work really hard, maybe, you know, maybe we can see what you can do sneaky in the back door. No. Today, you will be with me in paradise. You can't get down off that cross. You can't go say you're sorry to your mama for ruining her life. You can't go write some country songs about it, how you were in prison for your whole life. You can't do any of those things. The only thing you can do is die and enter the kingdom of God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we, have this, we see the gap. Verse 4, 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Because what's our response to a gap like this? It's not to throw yourself at a parade and tweet about how awesome you are. It's to look this square in the face and realize that your hands are empty and you're in such great need. What does God say he'll do for those people who are mourning about such things? He will comfort them. He will wipe the tears from their eyes. He'll save them. He'll give them a new life. He'll set them free. And it's not because of anything we've done, but everything Christ has done for us. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, again, the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. And I think Jesus has his eye on the restored world in which we live, or the restored world in which we will live when heaven and earth become one. It's those who live here who say, I am a sinner saved by grace who get to be in the kingdom of God and who will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Not those who say, I am awesome and I am great. And honestly, this, this is an ongoing life thing. It's not just I'm going to check a box and say I love Jesus and then go on doing whatever the heck I want to do with the rest of my life. It's about a changed life in Christ. Go back with me to 1 Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God. So how do we humble ourselves? We have a mighty good look at this because this isn't like fake contrition. C.S. Lewis once said that true biblical humility is being able to look at a building that another architect or engineer built and, and look at your own building and appreciate them for what they are in the sense that if you have gifts and you have talents, you don't look at them and tell everybody how horrible you think they are because you don't actually think they're horrible. You're like, that was a pretty cool building I built. Humility says, I know that that building stands because the God of the universe put breath in my lungs. The God of the universe put light, you know, blood in my veins. The God of the universe gave me talents. The God of the universe gave me drive. That building belongs to him. Praise the Lord. That's humility. It's, it's knowing who you actually are, knowing who he is, knowing who you are, and where you sit in the world, which is a kind of living in reality. Now, Peter has a really interesting way for us to actually execute this humility, right? He, he doesn't just leave us in the abstraction. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he might exalt you. And I think he's, he's thinking here, again, uh, you know, when everything's put back the way it's supposed to be, when, when our names are written in the book of life. Casting all your anxieties is the word in the ESV. Um, that's okay. That's a, that's a good word for that. Uh, I would also say, you know, think about like, concern, like concerns. Uh, think about the, the things you're dealing with in your life. And, and honestly, a lot of times the Bible doesn't talk about this, you know, seek first the kingdom. Like it doesn't say, hey, don't like feed your kids. It, it doesn't say don't, you know, clothe yourself or put air in the tires on your car. It doesn't say that, that, that only seek Jesus and don't eat ever. Like that's not what it says. Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Follow Jesus, and you'll actually be given everything you need, and you need to understand whatever God gives you and wherever you're at in life right now to be here living and breathing and talking about Jesus is exactly what you need. I mean, we love to think about what we think we need and what Jesus should give us, you know, blessings. We think of them as blessings. Honestly, sometimes he's blessing you by not giving you something you think you need. Sometimes that is the blessing. Because what are you going to do with it? right? 
So cast your anxieties on him. Cast your concerns on him. Cast these things that, that are in front of you on him. That takes some humility. It takes some humility when you're struggling with that family member or that friend or that church or whatever it might be, and you get on your knees at the end of your bed and you say, Jesus, please save my baby sister. You say, Jesus, please move in my family. I can't do it. It's impossible. Save my baby sister. Please, Jesus, do something here. I, I can't do any. My hands are empty, Jesus. Do something, please. Or I'm struggling here. I'm struggling to believe your goodness here. I'm struggling to believe your grace here. I'm struggling to be pat. Whatever it might, whatever that thing is, it actually takes a lot of humility to get on your knees and open your hands to God and tell him what he already knows, and that's that they're very, very empty hands. We are horrible at this as Americans, by the way. Horrible. I think that's why we're horrible at prayer sometimes. And, and I would also say that this, this kind of thing we're talking about, because he cares for you, right? You can go to him with those empty hands because he actually cares about you. Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so, right here in First Peter, right? He, he cares about you, which means that we trust in Jesus, which means we can prioritize our lives around the kingdom of God. We can prioritize our lives around Jesus. And to be frank, there's this thing in economics we call opportunity cost. To prioritize your life around Jesus, or put it simply, opportunity cost means that if you do one thing, it means you often can't do something else. Which means if you prioritize your life around Jesus, there are a lot of things, not even like bad or sinful things, that you're just not going to be able to do. There are sacrifices you're going to need to make to prioritize your life around Jesus, and you're going to need to trust him with a lot. You could be doing something else when you're praying. Did you know that? It's true. We're pretty good at it. We all have electric phone computer things and find plenty of other things to do while we're bored, right? You sit for five minutes, you're like, oh, I wonder how the Mariners did. I can pray for them. Yeah, I can. You know, there's a lot of non-Christians on the team. I can, I can pray for those. Just leave the phone outside the room for a minute, right? God's, God's got it. It's okay. He doesn't need you to pray for the Mariners per se. But it was nice when they were in the second in the Isle West for just a second. But moving on. <laughs> Honestly, we, we're bad at sleep. God's built you to rest. He's built into your biology the need to sleep and the need to rest and, and the need to find respite. And we say, nah, I'm just going to drink some more coffee. Drink coffee. Coffee's fine. But maybe not at 11 at night. Every night. All the time. Unless you sleep till 1 and you work at a restaurant. Then it's fine. I'm not here to legislate your morality. What I'm saying is it actually takes some trust in the Lord Jesus to say, I'm going to go to bed now. I'm going to read my Bible instead of do something else. I believe that the Bible is going to be the thing that is like, you know, Bible readings like the solar panels for our spiritual life. Yeah, you, you, you hopefully have read it. You, you might not even find new information in it. Maybe reading your Bible's not all about information download. Maybe your whole Christian life isn't about what you know but who you love. And reading the Bible makes me love Jesus more and charges my batteries up, but it means there's other things that I cannot do. So humble yourselves. Why? Because he cares for you. 
Now, what's interesting is, and we'll see this in a second when we get down to the end of the, the, the paragraph here, uh, you know, there's something that we do and there's something God does, and then there's this sort of uh, comment or excursus or this thing he's doing in verse 8 that's, you know, on the side here, but not really. Uh, it's interesting, James, as we'll see in a second, also links humility and resisting the devil. They go together like peas and carrots. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Another way that can be translated, be awake, be aware, pay attention. These things, by the way, I know we can rail against them all the time because it's kind of easy. These things really can hurt our ability to pay attention and be aware and awake spiritually. If it's not this, it's something else. It's the bigger one or the really big one or whatever, right? I don't have the phone. Well, yeah, but you have them. I'm not picking on you, by the way, if you're reading. I'll just look into the distance. I can't see who's reading their Bible on their phone right now. You're fine. <laughs> just be careful. It's a little computer that lives in your pocket. It can numb our senses. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Be awake. Be aware, church. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Shorthand, Satan hates you all and he wants all of us to die and not love Jesus. Period. Period. That's, that's reality. Now, we fall into one of two ditches, and I'm not the first person to make this observation, but we do. We fall into one ditch that basically says Satan's not really real or, or whatever. I don't Satan. Whatever. The other ditch is to blame Satan for absolutely everything all the time. Because here's the reality of the Christian faith. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you know this about this. We're what are called supernaturalists. We believe in beyond what we see in the material. And by the way, God is way more powerful than Satan, just for starters. Uh, you know, God speaks to people in a variety of ways. He speaks to us through his word. Uh, he moves in life. He answers prayer. His spirit moves through his people. He guides us. He leads us. He directs us. The miraculous is absolutely and completely possible because it's not really miraculous for God. It's just God being God. That's how he works. Now, we have these two ditches. We don't want to talk about it because it's kind of weird and you just said Satan and you know, you're thinking about movies or you know, metal records or Dio or something and you don't want to talk about it. It's weird. Or you just want to start ascribing to Satan absolutely everything. And I think this fails us on a couple levels. One, uh, to say that Satan isn't at work in the world is pretty much to deny most of the New Testament's teaching on Satan, just to be honest. It's like eschatology. We're doing an eschatology class. We're talking about the return of Jesus and this, this future stuff that's going to happen. And you say, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. But it turns out the stuff's everywhere. So let's just talk about it and not be weird about it. So here's what you do when you're dealing with stuff. You stay really close to the Bible. And I'm pleading with you. Please, please, pretty please, with sugar on top, when you get to it confusing or what can seem, uh, you know, you know, fantastic or even dramatic doctrine, please, pretty please, don't add anything that the Bible doesn't say. Don't add anything. Stay close to the Word. That's the rule for everything, by the way. Stay close to the Word, and we'll do that as we talk about this thing. Resist Satan, your adversary. He's your enemy. He hates you. The devil prowls around like a lion seeking someone 
uh, to devour. Now, I think it does us a disservice when we kind of get materialistic and we don't deal with the fact that we're supernaturalists. And, I, and by that, I mean we believe in things like miracles and that Jesus rose from the dead and that he walked on water and he fed 5,000 people uh, and that Satan is real and he hates you and he wants you to die. And this stuff actually happens. Uh, we, we run into a problem, and I found this particularly in the Pacific Northwest. Here's the deal. We have lots and lots and lots of neighbors, or maybe you're in here and you're one of these folks, who are hyper-spiritualists, who have spiritual experiences all the time, who are experiencing things uh, that cannot be explained. And when we are busy being over-materialistic, by that I mean, I don't mean like the consumption of goods. I mean like all I see is this little lamp deal. Sorry, Russell, I messed with your lamp and now you can't see in the light. Um, You know, this is it. And, And I think of everything, I don't think that it rains because God makes it rain. I think it rains because of the process that rain happens. We're kind of, we can be kind of mechanistic and materialistic. You ask the average person, why does it rain? If you live in Washington, you know it's because the water evaporates and it makes a cloud, then it hits a mountain and the water dumps down on us for like 127 days straight. uh, And that's how rain works. Well, yes, that's how God executes that. But at the end of the day, it rains or it's not raining. Thank you, Jesus. Because Jesus said so. That's why. Right? We start, we start there. God, God's at work in the world. Now, uh, the Bible, again, staying close to the Bible, Leviticus 7.17 talks about the pretend gods that our, that our neighbors are worshiping and talks about demons at work behind those. There's malevolent spiritual forces behind those things. Now, Paul's going to do a couple of things. He's going to concur. 1 Timothy chapter... Got to stay close to your Bible, especially when you're talking about this stuff. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And at the same time, he's going to say, those gods are nothing. So what does that mean? It means demons are doing weird stuff. We also believe in demons because the Bible believes in demons. There's Satan and demons. Satan is the head of the demonic forces. They're malevolent spiritual forces at work against humanity. Uh, And so when you see a statue of Zeus, which we don't see very often anymore, those statues of Zeus, Zeus isn't real, but Satan uses these things to lie to people about the world. Now, on the other side, and we'll, we'll dig as much as we can, since Peter's got like one verse on it. We'll, we'll dig as much as we can because we want to understand this. You know, on the other side, we have the sense that like Satan's doing everything. We give him way too much credit and way too much power. First of all, he's, he's not, it's not like God and it's not Jesus and Satan in the boxing match that are even Stephen. Uh, Satan is a created being who rebelled against God, who hates God and hates his people and is at work in the world. Uh, and he's created, which means he's not omnipotent, he's not omnipresent, he doesn't know everything, he doesn't know your heart. Uh, he's just also old, weird, spiritual, and observant. So he knows how people act. Because it turns out people pretty much go down the same way every time right? It's like one of three things. You tempt them with money, you tempt them with power, you tempt them with, you know, fill in the blank. There's only a few things. It's actually not that hard for most people to just crash when they're not centered on Jesus. They're not humbled in Christ. Now, here's the problem. At some point in time, we begin to think that Satan's behind every bush. So, you know, Satan made my computer crash this morning, couldn't print my sermon out. Satan, right? No. Well, I mean, it could be. I mean, it could be demonic, sure. It could be. I have the Bible. And maybe my printer hates my laptop. Thanks, printer. Stupid printer. It printed. For some reason, you hit print, and then it prints five minutes later off my laptop, which is really frustrating, because you hit print like 10 times and cuss at it a couple of times, and then it prints 50 pages of what you were trying to print. That's a different sermon for a different day on the broken world in which we live. 
But we really elevate Satan way too much. And I had a seminary prof who said, Satan's not behind every bush. But he is behind some of the bushes. He's not behind everything. But he is real, and he hates you. And honestly, our biggest problem as Christian people is Satan, and as we'll see in a minute, Satan beats the drum and we like the rhythm. Satan, Satan's, here, have this. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds really good. I should eat a whole cheesecake right now. No, you shouldn't. Don't do that. So when we're talking about these spiritual forces in the world, there's, there's this breakdown, right? And this is even good as you're ascertaining if you have a spiritual experience of some kind. Uh, was that God talking? I feel like God really spoke to me. God really told me this thing. Well, how do you know he told you that thing? Well, number one, you tested against his word. But, you know, it could have just been the bad burrito you had for lunch. The reality is there's a biological reality to you. It could have just been the burrito. Not every time you think God said something, he said something. But I'll tell you what, sometimes when he says stuff, he's saying stuff, and you better listen. But how do we do that? We test it by Scripture. Is that in the Bible? And it's especially obvious when you think that God told you to do something that's against the Bible. Because God didn't tell you to do that thing at all. Now, sometimes it is the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is moving. Stabbed by a cup holder. And sometimes it is malevolent spiritual forces at work. Now, I think our problem is that we default to movies. We default to CGI. To be frank, I think usually when people have these extraordinary spiritual experiences, it only confirms what they know is true. Like, people don't have a manifestation of something and then they think, oh, wow, I should really walk away from Jesus right now. They think, oh, man, that was frightening. I'm going to go talk to Jesus about it, right? Default mode, something weird is happening. Christians, even when we don't pray a ton normally, usually start to pray, right? Satan's way more subtle than that. And, and here's, here's what I mean by that. Uh, if you would go with me to Second Corinthians, or Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Starts on the next page, says this. Therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Do that. That's good stuff, right? So see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. There are two kingdoms at work. There's the kingdom of God and the dominion of darkness. Satan's over here in the dominion of darkness. Lots of horrible things happen here. You and I, if you are a Christian, live here in the kingdom of God. You do not belong to Satan. Satan does not possess you. Uh, Satan has no authority of you over you. You belong to Jesus. Now, you live in a world, again, you're born, behind enemy, you're born again behind enemy lines. We live in a world that is organized against Jesus and the things of God. Uh, and Satan's involved in there. People are involved in there. And all these things that are organized against God are busy trying to get you and I into that thing. But you don't belong to that world anymore. And so this is Paul's warning to his people. Don't, don't fall in for this stuff. Whether it's Foucault or you know, Italian horror movies or whatever. Like don't, don't, don't give yourself over to it. Why? 
For in him, that's Jesus, the, whole, uh, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head and rule of the authority. In him also you were uh, circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by circumcision in Christ. You're a new person. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you once also were raised through him, uh, the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Uh, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen, Christians, listen to verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's Satan and demons, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus has won the war. We're just sort of behind enemy lines as he brings this thing to fruition. Now, the thing is that Satan, and we'll see why in a second how this works out. So we, again, we always blame Satan for everything. Uh, The Bible's clear. There are things in the world that tempt us. There's just stuff around. You're driving down the street and somebody's got a car or a truck or something that you want. Your brother, that guy, he's always getting bigger, nicer, better, whatever whatever, whatever's, right? Whatever. We're tempted by the world. We're tempted by the things we see. We're tempted by the things that we're after. We're also tempted by the flesh. We're taking off the old person, the person we used to be, and, and, and being the person who we are. And sometimes you sin and are tempted and give in to temptation. Sorry, it's a bummer day for you to hear this because you wanted to. That's the flesh. So we war against the flesh, we're awake in the world, and sometimes it's Satan. And Satan's number one tactic is to lie to you about God or about you. That whole thing we read about uh, uh, us being in Christ should change everything we think about. The money you have, your body image, any other thing that brings you down. Whatever that might be. Because you, if you are a Christian... You are so loved by the God of the universe through Jesus, even though in and of yourself you're a sinner. You get to be his kid. You're you're loved by him. You're accepted by him. Uh, He doesn't look at you and think you're broke. He doesn't look at you and, and judge your body image. Jesus doesn't do that to you. Satan, however, does. And frankly, you do too. And our problem, I would argue, is that sometimes that we get in sort of agreements with Satan, agreements with the demonic, you know, these insults that, that we throw at ourselves. You ever throw an insult at yourself? By your intelligence, your appearance, your wealth, your standing in life? You ever throw one of those at yourself? You don't have to tell me. Like, we're not doing that. Please, in fact, don't. Don't. Satan loves that stuff. Because when you're believing that, you're believing something different than this reality of the gospel. You're believing something different that you're more loved and accepted by the God of the universe than you could possibly imagine. That you're missing the fact that Jesus is more for you than you could ever know. And then when Satan comes to him and accuses you, he's called the accuser. Accuser. When he comes to accuse you to God and says, well, look at that guy. He's a bum. Jesus says, paid. Paid. Mine. Love that guy. Mine doesn't even say love that guy. He's a knucklehead. He just says love that guy, son of God most high. Okay. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. 
us eat popcorn. 4.17. Listen. Oh, clock. Now I say this in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's encouraging them, don't walk in that dominion of darkness. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have hard hearts, and we look at them, and we look at their lives, and we look at their fame, and we look at their money, and we look at their prestige, and we look at all these things people care about. You say, I wish I had that. And Jesus says, why? It's garbage. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy practice, every kind of impurity. Now skip down with me. Uh, Oh man, this is all very good, but you can read that later. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Listen, 26, be angry and do not sin. He doesn't say don't be angry. There are things, friends, to be angry at in this world. There are dark things that people do against other people that should make us angry. They make God angry. They should make us angry. If you're not angry about something, honestly, wake up. Wake up. However, be angry and do not sin. When you look at what's going on in the world and you get angry, you go to your knees in prayer and you say, Jesus, please come. Please move. Please save those people. Please save them. Now, we love to sin because then we love to sit as the judge of everything. We get angry and then take it personally and, and love to sit as the judge of all things. But listen to what he says. Someone, someone steps on your foot and you take it personally for, against them for 10 years. You know, you got grudges against people. You don't even remember what the grudge is about. You just know you don't like them. Maybe that's just people in my family. You speak the truth, uh, neighbor. Yes, we read that. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So deal with it. If someone sinned against you or you're angry with somebody, you go apologize to them or you go talk to them about that thing. But then he says this. Give no opportunity to the devil. That bitterness and nastiness, these things where we're aligning ourselves with the dominion of darkness, gossip and worldliness and and, and lust and greed uh, and anger and strife and enmity, all these things do this thing where the word in Greek means to a place. Probably what Paul has in mind here is a room. So when you align yourself with the dominion of darkness, when you align yourself with the world, uh, though it's not fantastic CGI, spiritual warfare stuff, it's like you're going to your house and you're clearing out a nice room in your house, and you put out the towels and a little soap, and my wife's awesome. People stay at her house, she gets some chocolate and stuff, and it's like being at a hotel, and they're very blessed, and my wife is awesome. Uh, and, and saying, okay, I've made this nice room. Hey, Satan, why don't you come stay at my house for a while? Why don't you come live with me, and I'll listen to you and do the things you say? Because Satan beats the drum, and we like the rhythm. When we have that bitterness and enmity and strife, we're just making room because you sit there, and, and honestly, Satan's just always telling you lies about God or lies about yourself. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He's not going to do that for you. Whatever it might be, he tells us lies about God. God doesn't love. God, God's not gracious. He's not kind. And then we say, yeah, you're right. He's not. Maybe he's gracious and kind to somebody else, but he's not going to be gracious and kind to me. I mean, he answers that guy's prayers, but he's not going to answer mine. Or he tells you lies about yourself. You're this, you're that. This is something about your appearance. This is something about your wealth. This is something about how people feel about you. But what does he say? Back in... First Peter. And to be frank, there's just more we can talk about, and it's one verse, and we just can't dig into the depths of the whole New Testament on this subject. So back in Peter. 
Be sober-minded. Be awake. Be aware. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around you like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist. Resist him. Now listen, he's going to give us two, a piece of encouragement and a, a way we resist. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You are not alone. Satan hates us all, and he's coming after everybody. And the reason he's coming after you if you are a Christian is because you're associated with Jesus. He hates you because of Jesus. And the thing that Peter has driven home again and again and again and again, if we are hated because of Jesus, bring it on. Bring it on. I love Jesus. He's all I have. Now, but he says something here. Don't miss it. He say, resist him. How? Firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. Well, what does that mean? Again, Satan tells us lies about ourselves and about God, and we come back to the truth about God. We come back to the truth that not height nor depth nor powers nor principalities could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We come back to the truth that I am not the man I once was. Uh, those things, those images or memories that Satan might conjure up in your life, or even just honestly as you're dealing with in yourself and your flesh, and you're thinking about that thing you did like 15 years ago. Forget about it. That's not who you are. That's a dead person. You're alive. You're free in Christ. You're forgiven. You're loved. Jesus paid the price. He paid it all. Sing songs to yourself. Remind yourself, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. What does that mean? It means he paid it all. You're more forgiven than you can possibly even conceptualize in yourself. Satan wants to condemn you. Jesus has forgiven you. You're forgiven. And tomorrow you're going to be forgiven. The day after that, you're going to be forgiven. And the day after that, and the day after that, because not height nor depth nor powers and principalities could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Stand firm in the faith. Read your Bibles, church. Please read your Bible. Please be in this thing all the time. The world and Satan and even yourself are telling you all kinds of lies, and God's sitting here ready to tell you the truth. Okay, last piece. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of... It's rather to use the word all here. It's not the God of some grace. He's the God of all grace. The God of all grace. And I lose my spot. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He's not calling you to his eternal glory in Christ has called you. This is where you stand. When you're standing here and you're looking at this stuff, you say, okay, there's some stuff I got to clean out, some truths I got I to cling to, and I even see where I'm being deceived now. And, and don't leave here. Talk to somebody. Pray with somebody. Sit in your chair. Talk to Jesus. Be reminded of the gospel. Don't leave here. If any of that stuff resonated, I just said, but remember, you've been called into the eternal glory in Christ. Now, what's funny is that Peter does bad writing here. And I don't think it's just because he's a fisherman and his Greek's not as good as Luke's, though that's true. He uses these four words, restore, because Christ himself, Christ himself, you yourself need to be humble, but Christ himself is going to do this to you. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, 
conf- uh, restore really means put back in working order. This is what he's doing in all of our lives. If you come in here and you're not a Christian, you don't think, I need to leave here and clean myself up so I can come back and these people will like me and I can become a Christian. Stay with us because we are all in this same program together. Jesus' restorative program where he's making us more and more functional, putting us more and more back in working order. For goodness sakes, we're called Restoration Road Church. It's what we do. It's really what Jesus does, as we see here. But it's a kind of strengthening. But then confirm, is an, it, this word really means like an inner strengthening. Because when you know, when you have this humility, and you have this eye on Christ, and you know about the being behind enemy lines, and you know what's going on spiritually, this, this gives us an inner strength that says, I can cling to Jesus with everything I got. And then the word strengthen, honestly, in the Greek, it's pretty much just the word strengthen. It just makes you strong. Jesus is going to make you strong. You might feel weak right now. And in fact, as a Christian person, I think we're always going to be weak, but there's this strengthening thing. Years of, 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 of turning to Jesus makes us stronger and stronger. And then finally, establish you. That's like laying the concrete foundation on a house and making a nice, strong house. He used like four words for making you strong. Because I'm weak. And the Spirit moves in my life and makes me strong in Christ. And then he closes with this, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's just him throwing this phrase away. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's the king of kings forever and ever and ever. And because I believe in exegetical preaching, we're going to talk very, very quickly about 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, uh, as I regard him, um, I have written briefly to you. So Silvanus is probably, that probably means he's a scribe here who's writing this actual letter, writing it out for Peter, but Peter's saying it. Um, I've written to you briefly exhorting and declaring. Exhorting, that's encouraging. I wrote this thing so you'd be encouraged, friends. If you're feeling down, if you're feeling pushed, if you're feeling persecuted, read First Peter and keep going, right? By the way, he didn't call it First Peter when he wrote it, but it would have been sort of cool if he did. And declaring that this is the true, listen, and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it, right? Don't let go of him. Stand firm in these truths that we've discussed. Stand on them. She was in Babylon. This is code word for Rome, most likely. And by the way, Babylon, we're talking about Babylon. We're talking about like the heart and the, like the spiritual capital of the heart of darkness, of the dominion of darkness. That's what Babylon typically represents, uh, biblically speaking. And he's conjuring up this old, old language. And it could be code. Because he's not. If someone gets the letter, he's maybe not giving away where he's at. Or honestly, it just could be an indictment against Rome, saying, "Man, I'm in Rome. Whew! It is dark here. It is dark. Stand firm." Who is likewise chosen? So she. That's the church, using the, the female pronoun there. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, also saved, also in with Christ. She was at Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. This is amazing because Mark is the same Mark who writes Mark's gospel, which is Peter's account of the gospel message. That's why we have that with apostolic authority. Uh, But this is the same Mark who was on mission with Paul and he kind of whisked out and went home. And Barnabas said, hey, no, we should take Mark again. And Paul says, no, he, no. And then they split over it, still faithful. And of course, the amazing thing is 2 Timothy at the end, maybe even hours before uh, Paul is executed, says, hey, send Mark. So real human beings uh, in the work of God. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ. Praise the Lord, for sure. Peace to all who are in Christ.
So a normal Christian life also entails in waiting in Jesus for him to restore, to confirm, to strengthen, and to establish uh, you. I would argue these truths are humility in Christ and, and God's restorative work and this reality that we actually are living behind enemy lines and there's an actual spiritual conflict at work. All of these things are, are the normal life in Christ. This is what it is to be a normal Christian person, to be engaged in the work of, of God. Now, if you're here today and, and you heard this stuff about the gospel and you heard this stuff about Jesus coming for us, not us, coming up to him, and maybe even saw the gospel in a new way, which I think living this way does, it, it puts the gospel on display. If you don't know Jesus, man, we, we're so thankful you're here. We, all we want for you is to know Jesus. We would love to talk with you. We've got prayer people. I'd talk, I, loved, I love talking with people. We've got people at the desk who talk to you. We've got people up here who talk to you. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to give you a Bible. We'd love to make sure you're invited into our community so that you can know him and love him. And honestly, friends, frankly, if you don't know Jesus, today is the day. Turn from your sin. Turn to him and receive his grace and mercy. We turn from our old life and we turn to him and he'll save you right now. You don't have to fix your life up. You don't have to put your life together. You need to turn to him and receive his grace. If you're hearing this, Christian brothers and sisters, church, and you're saying, that actually from the Bible sounds like a more normal Christian life. But I don't know that that sounds like my Christian life. Don't just feel bad about it, right? Don't just feel guilty about it. Jesus is just ready to move in your life right now. It's in his word. He loves you and wants you to have this full, real life in him. Today's the day. Come talk with us. Walk with us. We'll stick you with people who will walk with you and help you and disciple you. And if, if, if this is you, like, and again, I always say this, but I really do mean it. I don't mean like that you're doing this perfectly. I don't mean that you're never uh, yelling at your printer at 730 in the morning when you're trying to get up to preach God's word. Um, that happens, right? But what I mean is that, that, that your life is, is more and more tuned to the gospel. What are you going to do? How are you going to participate? How are you going to help other people be strengthened in the gospel and, and stand firm in Jesus? Honestly, that's between you and the Spirit, what he wants to do, but, but how are you going to give of your life to help, help our church, other Christians, follow Jesus? I'm going to pray for us and we'll set up communion.